providing us with the, the pastors and the elders to teach your word, Lord. Would you please bless, <clears throat> please bless Pastor Philip as he comes up here to preach over the second epistle of John, Lord. Help his words to be true. Help his words to be without error. And help us to receive his words free from distraction with open minds and open hearts, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, South Carolina Baptist Church. I don't know about you guys, but I am always excited and thrilled to, to see so many children in our church learning the Bible. Not only are they learning the Bible, but having them involved in our weekly worship service, it, it's an encouragement and a challenge, isn't it, to all of us that we would be learning the way they're learning with their excitement and with their joy. It's a lesson and a parable to us, I think, that we should all have this same kind of joy and excitement when it comes to learning God's Word. So I am so thankful that we have so many children and thankful for those that are working with them. You know, this past week, I saw a tweet that claimed that the rapture was supposed to occur this past Friday, so two days ago, on 9-22 at 12 midnight. And so since we are still here today, I am sorry to inform you that we missed it. Again. However, as laughable and ridiculous as these repeatedly failed predictions of our Lord's return have become, I believe they reveal something significant about the nature of Christian faith. Namely, that our pervasive fascination and our desire to know when our Lord is going to return, it's a fascination that dwells within each of us, reveals that there is an irresistible longing that rests deep within the Christian soul. It is our fundamental desire to be with Christ if we belong to Him. To live under His real and present reign on earth. As Christians, we immediately understand that when we look at this world and the downhill trajectory that it continues to ride, we understand that there is something better, something more glorious that awaits us. We are so often painfully aware that this world is not as it should be, that this creation is not our home, that Pain and suffering are not the end of our story. And so we rightly and deeply long for that day when our faith shall be made sight. This is the essence of Christian hope. Yes, it is true that we are living in the biblical last days. But of course, this has been true for 2,000 years now, hasn't it? The last days actually began with the ministry of Jesus on earth. He came into Galilee preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. He inaugurated His kingdom by His death and His resurrection and His ascension on high. And as His followers, we stand in the light of His promise that in the same way that He, that he ascended, He will one day also descend in glory when He comes a second time. For 2,000 years now, the followers of Christ have lived between this already and this not yet. And the more that I read the New Testament, the more that I'm convinced that the key to understanding what the apostles taught and wrote is grounded in this reality. Paul and James and Matthew and John were acutely aware that their audiences were living in this tension. Pressed on the one hand with the challenge of living for Christ in a sin-soaked world. And on the other hand with their hope and their longing to be at home in glory. 
with Christ. And the question of how to live in this tension, how to be faithful in this in-between time, this is the question that drives the concerns and the priorities of all of the New Testament authors. You see, they were overwhelmingly aware that the audiences to whom they were writing and ministering represented those on whom the ends of ages have come. And there is perhaps no place where this is more clear than in the writings of the Apostle John. Now let me be clear to you this morning that I believe that all of the books of John, namely the fourth gospel, the three letters which bear his name, and the revelation, were all written by the same John. That being the disciple of Jesus, one of the twelve, the brother of James, the son, those sons of Zebedee, who were once known as the sons of thunder. And if you've ever read any of the book of Revelation, then you know that he was on the island of Patmos, and the Lord revealed to John those things that pertain to the end. But even here in his letters, John seems particularly aware that his audience is living in the last hour. As he writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, we read, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. It is the last hour. And because of this, John knew that his churches would face the difficulty of maintaining their faithfulness to Christ in the midst of a culture where they would face increasing antagonism and hostility and the pressure to compromise and conform. And in these letters, he is writing to encourage these Christians to stand firm, to continue in the truth, to walk in obedience toward Christ and in love toward one another. As you already know, our text for this morning is the letter of 2 John. And next week, Pastor Stephen will be back to lead us through the letter of 3 John. However, when it comes to the background of these letters, we must affirm that the relationship between these three letters is somewhat of a matter of speculation. For all intents and purposes, the letter which we know as 1 John is practically anonymous since it lacks the customary epistolary opening which might identify the author and the recipients of that letter. It simply begins in verse 1 of the text with this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this we declare to you. And it ends simply in chapter 5 verse 21 with the words, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So the first letter of John lacks the customary features of a, of a letter, and it reads more like a homily or sermon. And so because of this, I believe it is best to see 2 John as a kind of cover letter for 1 John, written as it is to the elect lady and her children, which is likely a metaphor for the church that John is writing to. And then this like then, the third letter of John is probably best understood as a letter of commendation, or a personal letter to Gaius, who may have been the elder of the church, or more likely the host patron of that church to which John is writing. Regardless of all this, it seems very clear that these three letters were written to address the same or at least similar circumstances. Again, as we read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3, we read that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, even now is already in the world. And as we've already seen in our text in 2 John verse 7, we read many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Or again, as we read in verse 4 of our letter today, I'm very glad that to find some of your children walking in the truth and keeping with the command we have received from the Father. And so also we read in 3 John verse 4, we read, I had no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. In other words, we see these letters flow together. They are one 
unit of thought. They, they pur purpose to encourage John's audience to cultivate the habits of faithfulness in the last days. More specifically, they emphasize the habits of discipleship and Christian living that will sustain and protect us as we navigate the tensions of living in the already and the not yet of the last days. In other words, what I'm saying to you is here in 2 John, we're going to see four habits of Christian discipleship that are fundamental for sustaining our faith in these last days. This morning, I would like for us to recognize four disciplines of Christian practice that protect us from the deceptions and the temptations that will inevitably come against us as this world moves further and further away from Christ and yet closer and closer to His return. And the first one is simply this, namely that Christians living in the last hour should remain in the truth. Christians living in the last hour should remain in the truth. Look with me again in our text in verse 1 where we read, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and in love. Now, I have already suggested to you that the phrase, the elect lady and her children, is best understood as a metaphor for the church, since the word for church in the original language is feminine in its grammatical gender. And John says here that he loves her in the truth, along with all those who know the truth, because the truth remains in us and will be with us forever. Did you catch that? The word truth occurs here in these first three verses four times in quick succession. Five, if we include verse four, where he says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. You see, but we must understand that truth here is not merely a matter of doctrinal fidelity or theological integrity. For the Apostle John, truth is a person. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Moreover, in that same chapter, he promises to send the Spirit of truth, which is the Holy Spirit. And the word which he, we have here in verse 2, where we read the truth that remains in us, is the same word from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where we read, for example, in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me. And I in him produce as much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. So it seems rather clear here, that the truth in which we remain is the abiding presence of Christ through His Spirit. In fact, in verse 3, when John writes, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in love and truth, we understand that the bless, these blessings, namely grace and mercy and peace, are fruits of the indwelling Spirit within us. This is why they will be with us in truth and in love when we remain or abide in the one who is truth in himself. And it makes total sense, doesn't it? That the antidote to the deception of Antichrist would be the truth of the one who is truth in himself, the true Christ who came in the flesh, who died on the cross for sin and rose again. He is the truth, and he tells the truth about this world and its citizens. Namely, that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath, but he came to set us free from sin and death so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. This is the truth. This is the real essence of things, the reality of the way things are. And John's point here in these opening verses of his second letter is that this truth is the only foundation strong enough to sustain our identity as the Christian community, as the body of Christ, especially in these last days. The truth of who Christ is 
and of what He has done on our behalf draws us together, church. It connects and unites us. And when we remain in it, we stand united, strong, and secure in the One who has promised to be with us even until the end of the age. This is why we must remain in the truth. It seems rather clear here that for the Apostle John, remaining in the truth means remaining in the community of truth. It may be more than that, but it is certainly not less than our affections for and our commitment to one another within this local body. Our perseverance in serving and sustaining our relationships with one another. Listen, can I just tell you something? Relationships are hard, even within the body of Christ. It is inevitable that we will get sideways with one another in some way, say something or do something to rub someone else the wrong way. But when our relationships are based on the truth of who Christ is and of what He has done on our behalf, then we will find that it is much easier to request and to give forgiveness because He died for our sins. Here again, look with me at the promise in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. These blessings of grace, mercy, and peace are not some ethereal, mystical, individualized feeling of well-being. No. These virtues of Christ's likeness are cultivated in the crucible of the local body of Christ as we show grace and as we give mercy and as we receive peace from one another. This is why Christians living in the last hour should remain in the truth. Now the second habit of the end times Christian living that I see in this passage is this, namely that Christians living in the last hour should walk in love toward one another. Christians living in the last hour should walk in love toward one another. Look again with me in our text in verse 4. Well, we read, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth in keeping with a command we have received from the Father. So now I ask you, dear lady, not as if I were writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to His commands. This is the commandment, as you have heard it from the beginning, that you walk in love. Of course, it is interesting to me that John here refers to love as a command. We typically think of love as an emotion, don't we? Something that you might feel toward someone or something that you have a particular affinity for or connection with or an attraction to. We don't typically think of love as something that you do, much less as something that you can be commanded to do. However, this is exactly how the Bible speaks of love in both the Old and in the New Testaments. This is why John is able to say in verse 5 that this is a command that we have had from the beginning. According to the covenant God made with His people at Sinai, Israel was commanded to love Him by keeping His commandments and obeying His words. They were, they were likewise commanded to love their neighbors as themselves through sacrificial service and communi, communi, communal sharing. This is how Jesus Himself summed up the law, you remember, when He was asked about the greatest commandment, that we should love God and love others. So it makes total sense, doesn't it, that John, who refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, would encourage and command us to love one another. However, it is important for us to realize this morning that even though that this is an old command, one we have had from the beginning, 
It was made new in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Why does Jesus call this command new if it is in fact one that we have had from the beginning? Answer. In Jesus, because of the salvation that He accomplishes in us through His indwelling Spirit, we now have a new capacity to love each other. It is in fact His love that flows in us and through us by His Spirit that we in turn demonstrate toward one another. We are not simply containers or receptacles for His love. Rather, we are conduits for His love as His love flows through us to each other within the body of Christ. And so in this sense, not only do we have a new capacity for love, but we also have a new context for love. That being the local church. This is why John says here that we should love one another. Yes, we should love our families, our spouses, and our children. Yes, we should love our neighbors in a general sense. Yes, we should exhibit love toward others and the various responsibilities and requirements of our day-to-day lives. But the specific focus of this text is on our relationships with one another within the body of Christ. The local church is called to be a place of self-giving love. We are called to love each other because by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. And this is particularly true, I think, as we think about our faithfulness in the tension of the already and the not yet. Our strength, our encouragement, our support for cultivating Christ's likeness in a world full of deceivers and tempters and persecutors is to be found in the loving, serving, self-giving relationships that we have with one another in the local church. This is our refuge. This is our safe haven. This is the place where we find the shelter and the sustenance that we need to persevere. This is why John can say in his first letter, in chapter 5, in verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. That is you and me. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey His commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep His commands And his commands, watch this, are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. You see, when we surround ourselves with people who are pulling for us and pulling with us in love, then we find that we are able to persevere in holiness and faithfulness and to stand against the hostilities and the pressures of a lost and dying world. And his commands are not burdensome. We are stronger and safer when we stand together. And this is why Christian living in the last hours should walk in love toward one another. The third discipline for end times Christianity that we can see in this passage is this. Namely that Christians living in the last hours should watch themselves so that they will receive the full reward. Christians living in the last hour should watch themselves so that they will receive the full reward. Look with me in verse 7 of our text. Well, we read, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, 
so that you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home. And don't greet him, for the one who greets him shares in his evil works. Now I suggested to you earlier that in order to understand the perspective of the New Testament authors, we must employ a thoroughgoing understanding of the already and the not yet. And I believe that this is the key to understanding what John says here about the idea of Antichrist. Of course, John is the only author in the New Testament to use the specific word Antichrist. And we have already considered the text in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, where we read, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come, and by this we know that it is the last hour. Some have taken this to mean that there is no such thing as a final, eschatological, personal Antichrist figure. That it, that it is just the so-called spirit of Antichrist that we should be concerned with. And since it is already in the world, as John says, then there is no need to concern ourselves with who this Antichrist may or may not be. However, both the Old and the New Testaments give us a clear indication that there will one day be a specific figure who is the Antichrist with a capital A. He is the final eschatological enemy of God. He is the climactic ultimate persecutor of the people of God. He is the little horn of Daniel's visions. He is the desolation of abomination standing where he should not that Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse. He is the one Paul refers to as the man of lawlessness that will be revealed in 2 Thessalonians. And he is the beast which John himself describes in Revelation chapter 13. And yet John is clear that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. Even that there are many Antichrists with a lowercase a, who have gone out into the world. You see, this is the already and the not yet of Antichrist. It is the one who does not confess that Jesus is the Christ, that He came in the flesh, that He died on the cross and rose again, and that He ascended on the right hand to, uh, to the right hand of the Father, and that He is coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. This is the Antichrist. This is the false gospel. And it has been at work now for two centuries, deceiving and leading astray those who are ignorant. And blind. This is why John encourages us in verse 8 of our text to watch yourselves so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive the full reward. Hear me well, church. There is a great reward that awaits us in glory. We have a great hope. It is no less than an eternity lived in the unmediated presence of our Savior and King Jesus. This is our blessed and glorious hope. But this hope requires that we persevere in faithfulness. That we cling to our faith, even when all evidence stands to the contrary. When we feel as if our lives are falling to pieces around our ears. And when we are tempted to give up and to throw in the towel. This is precisely when we must watch out for ourselves. And John explains here how we can do this as we read in verse 9 where he says, anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. Do you want to know how to protect yourself from the Antichrist and his agents of deception? Remain in Christ's teaching. Abide, live, dwell in his word. Meditate constantly on the beauty and the glories of the gospel. 
fill your minds and your hearts and your conversations with the beauties of who Christ is and of what he has done on our behalf. Never tire of thinking and speaking and reading of Christ. Because John says when we do this, we nourish ourselves on the very life and strength of the triune God. This one, he says, has both the Father and the Son. And we could add through the presence of the indwelling Spirit. And I feel the need this morning to emphasize this again. But the command here to watch yourselves, this command here, this, this remaining in the teaching of Christ, is irreducibly plural and communal. This is not something that you and I do on our own. By ourselves, through our own insight and understanding, in our own little personal vacuum. No, we watch out for each other. We care for and encourage and sustain each other so that we might reach the finish line of glory together. John brings this relational aspect of the command out in verse 10 where he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and don't greet him. For the one who greets him shares in his evil work. You see, the warning here reminds us that we must be discerning about who we let in to the innermost places of our lives. Sometimes, though it hurts, though it is painful, we must distance ourselves from those who do not share the same convictions and perspectives that we hold concerning Christ and His gospel. I'm sure you've heard it put uh, something like this, bad company corrupts good morals. Or to put it another way, it is easier for others to bring you down than it is for you to bring others up. Yes, we should always be ready to share the gospel and invite others to repentance. But we must also cultivate healthy boundaries based on the priorities and the convictions and the principles of the Word of God. Lest we become partakers with evil works themselves. Christian living, Christians living in the last hour should watch themselves so that they will receive the full reward. And lastly, this morning, Christians living in the last hour should complete their joy by embracing embodied relationships. Christians living in the last hour should complete their joy by embracing embodied relationships. Look again with me in verse 12 of our text, where we read, Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children, he says, of your elect sister send you greetings. By way of preview... John will repeat this sentiment next week in 3 John verse 13 where he writes, I have many things to write to you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink and I hope to see you soon so we can talk face to face. It is of course somewhat ironic to me that John doesn't want to write with ink and pen and yet he writes them three letters. Nevertheless, it is clear that John's priority was to be with his churches face to face. John understood the, ver- the value of embodied, in-person, gathered community. And although he could use these letters to convey his primary points of concern for his audience, there is just nothing that is more powerful, nothing that is more transformative, nothing that is more intimate than face-to-face relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is especially true as we move closer and closer to the consummation of God's plan for all things. 
This is why the author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 10, verse 25 of that letter, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and watch this, all the more as you see the day approaching. Gathered community. Face-to-face relationships. This is John's answer to the question of how Christians can protect themselves from the deceptions of the Antichrist in the last days. As we have seen again and again this morning, throughout this letter, John repeatedly emphasizes our corporate strength, our interdependence on one another, how our love and our affection and our commitment to one another sustains and nourishes and preserves our faith. This is maybe the most challenging aspect of biblical Christianity for modern Christians. No one wants to admit that they can't do it on their own. No one wants to admit that they actually need others for their own joy and contentment and fulfillment. No one wants to give up two hours on Sunday and two hours on Wednesday to go to church when they have so many other important things they can be doing with their time. No one wants to reach out or check up on anyone else throughout the week because they have so many worries and responsibilities of their own. It's tragic. Sad, really. We are a disconnected Isolated and lonely people, by and large. But this is not what Jesus envisioned for his disciples. And John understood that. We need each other. We need the life and the strength of of the embodied gathering of the saints. The face-to-face, self-giving relationships that are only possible within the local church. Yes, Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sin. But He also died and rose again so that we could persevere together as His people. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank You that You have not left us to persevere on our own. That You have placed us within this local body of believers, where we can find the encouragement and the nourishment and the sustaining presence to persevere. Help us to embrace one another. Help us to learn that we need one another and to relish and joy in the relationships that we have with one another. Make us one as you pray in your high priestly prayer, even as you and your Father are one. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.